right, it's been good to worship today. We're honored you're here. If you're a first-time guest, we've got an app you can download. We have Bible readings and scripture readings all week long for you to follow along with us. All right, don't say a word, but stand up. Stretch, stretch, stretch. Okay, be seated. All right, his, uh, his name has become legendary with one word. And see if you can figure out who this is in just a minute. He was born into privilege. He was supposed to go to Yale. He went to a prestigious business school instead. At age 16, however, he left college and went and fought in the French and Indian War. He did so well in the French and Indian War that by the time the American Revolutionary War came along, he was commissioned as a colonel, as as an officer. He won battles. He took forts. He commanded over 1,100 men uh, in the Battle of Saratoga. In fact, because we won the Battle of Saratoga, the French said, hey, these 13 colonies, they just might pull this thing off. We're going to join them. Because of this man, the, the French got involved. He was a personal friend of General George Washington. General George Washington then promoted him to be a general. But for whatever reason, for a reason that none of us can understand, Benedict Arnold decided to become a traitor. And when you hear the name Benedict Arnold, what's the one word that comes to your mind? Maybe nothing comes to your mind. What's the word traitor? How many of you knew that? Okay. Now, now you can all raise your hand. Now you all know that, right? All right. So whenever you hear the name Benedict Arnold, it usually means traitor. Nobody knows why he did it. Maybe he did it for the money. He got 20,000 pounds, which is about a million dollars today. Um, most people think he did it because he didn't get the, the credit for most of those battles that he actually won. Or perhaps he married a very young bride who was high maintenance named Peggy Shipman, and perhaps because she had loyalties to Great Britain, maybe he did it because of his wife. We don't really know. But what we do know is that the name Benedict Arnold is not a good name in American history. It's legendary for all the wrong reasons. Now, our author today is not a Benedict Arnold, and our author today does not write to a person who's a Benedict Arnold, but our author today writes to a nation of Benedict Arnolds. The nation has gone spiritually AWOL. And so Malachi, he writes to a group of people about 400 years before Jesus Christ. Now, you got to stick with me because in 20 minutes, I'm coming to two key words, which will be the success of your life. How you manage the two words I'm going to come to in 20 minutes will determine whether or not you will be successful as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife. It will determine whether or not you will be successful in business. It will determine whether or not you will be successful in life. So I'm coming to something in 20 minutes. Malachi goes forward to John the Baptist, which goes forward to Jesus Christ, which then goes forward to two key words. And how you manage those two key words is the determination of how successful you will actually be in life. But before we go forward, let's go backwards. So again, we've got 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. Let's go back about another 100 years. The Jewish people are in exile. 
70 years of captivity. For 70 different years, they've been carried away from Jerusalem to modern-day Iran, approximately 1,000 miles. The Babylonians took over them. So here comes a governor. The 70 years are up, and a governor by the name of Zerubbabel. Say that with me out loud, Zerubbabel. Say it again, Zerubbabel. Ladies, if you come up with some names for sons, that's a great one, Zerubbabel, okay? So Zerubbabel is the governor, and the governor then rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. And so now there are sacrifices going on again in the land. A few more years go by. There's a guy by the name of Ezra. And Ezra then begins to bring from Tehran today, modern-day Iran, he begins to bring the Jewish people back in caravans, in clans, in waves, and they begin to come back to Jerusalem. But what he finds is spiritual unhealthiness, spiritual disaster. The people forgot their tithes. The people forgot to do the Sabbath. The people had a low view of marriage, a low view of women, a low view of children. They began to have idol worship all throughout the land. And so Ezra then creates this great culture of spiritual reformation. He helps the people find God, fall in love with God, and follow God. A few more years go by. We're getting closer and closer to that 400 B.C. And there's a man by the name of Nehemiah. So we've got Zerubbabel. Say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. We've got Ezra. Say Ezra. And now we've got Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, now the Persians took over where the Babylonians left off. And so this is still modern-day Iran. And here is Ezra. And then there's Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now, it's a great job as long as nobody tried to assassinate the king. It's a terrible job if somebody tries to assassinate the king because you drink the wrong drink. You have no job security. So he's the cupbearer to the king. And the king says to Nehemiah, why is your face downcast? Why are you discouraged? What is going on? What is wrong with you? And Nehemiah says, well, my people back a thousand miles from here, back in my homeland, there's no walls to protect the city. And they're a soft target for bandits and for thieves. And so the Persian king says to Nehemiah, well, go back home and rebuild the walls. And when you finish the whole wall thing, come back to work for me because you're a great employee. It's exactly what Nehemiah does. And Nehemiah takes more people and he goes back and there's incredible spiritual reform. And then he goes back to work. He honors exactly the covenant that he made with the king and he goes back to Persia. 14 years later, 14 years later, the people again have forgotten the the Sabbath They've forgotten the tithes. They have a low view of women, a low view of children, a low view of marriage, and they're having idol worship. And by the way, the whole thing about the Sabbath was all about trust. You see, these people were told by God, if you work six days, you get to eat for seven. No other nation could do that. 99% of those people had to work seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day to eat seven days a week. We don't get that. None of us in this room can comprehend or can understand the culture of that. But in that day and age, you worked every day in order to be able to eat every day. But God said, if you work six, I'll feed you for seven. Same thing with the tithe. The tithe was never about money. The tithe was always about trust. If you will trust me, I will provide for you. If you will be faithful to the wife of your youth, life will go well for you. And so there's all these things that that Nehemiah reestablishes, and then he leaves. 
and he goes back to Persia. Fourteen years later is the context of our story this morning. Fourteen years later is what happens in Malachi, and Malachi is writing to a group of people who've gone off the rails spiritually. They've ignored everything that Ezra taught them. They're ignoring everything that Nehemiah taught them. And now, basically, Malachi's writing to most of the nation have become a Benedict Arnold, and he's writing to a group of people that they had better get their act together. So if you like Scripture this morning, I'm getting ready to give you a fire hose of Scripture, okay? If you don't like Scripture, you came to the wrong church this morning. So get ready. Are you okay? You need a break? You need a donut? You need Starbucks? I'm going to stop with that right there, okay? Anything else you need? All right, here we go. Here's Malachi chapter 1. Hang on to your hat or your toupee or whatever you got. All right. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests. Now, he starts with the leaders, the spiritual leaders. And isn't that really where it always begins? You show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have you shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, in other words, God's saying, I'm getting the what? I'm getting the leftovers. That's right. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled. And its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, diseased animals and you offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? All right, now we go to the next chapter, chapter 2. He's going to talk to the priests a little bit. And now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Now, just hang on for just a second. We're going to talk about two more words in the New Testament in just a minute, but right now we're introduced to curses and blessings. And throughout the entire Old Testament, there's these two words that are kind of like intention together. And, and people say, well, that was the Old Testament. Well, Jesus actually replaces those two words with two different words in just a couple of minutes. Well, actually, he did it 2,000 years ago, but I'm going to do it in a couple minutes. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. And you know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. That's a great covenant. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what all of us in this room want? We want more life and peace. And I gave them to him. And this called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and righteousness, and he turned many from their sins. Now we're going to talk about God's value of marriage. And notice what God thinks about marriage. Listen to what God says about marriage, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Here we go. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Well, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Benedict Arnold's. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. He's talking about people that are unequally yoked. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Well, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. God has a high view of women. God has a high view of marriage. The culture didn't. The people didn't have a high view of children or a high view of women or a high view of marriage. But God does. God values. I don't know why any woman in the world would be a Muslim. I don't know why every woman in the world wouldn't be a Christian. God has such a high view of women. You've been unfaithful to your partner, though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage covenant. Powerful words. Has not the Lord God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? What are the next two words? Godly offspring. It's one of the purposes of why God created marriage. The reason God wants you to marry a believer is so that you and the other, your spouse, will have the same core values, and by having the same core values, you will have godly offspring. This is the number one purpose and reason of marriage is for God's people to have godly offspring. So be on your guard, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Wow. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he protects. Now, listen carefully. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. He loves people, but God hates divorce. Why? Because God knows the pain and the problems that are going to take place through through a divorce. Don't misunderstand the Lord's word. He loves people. But he hates divorce because of the pain that divorce creates. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So I will come to put you on trial, and I will be quick to to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who deprive the widows and the fatherless. I'm going over this kind of quickly, but there's a lot of business things right there about, right? You don't pay people right. You don't pay people well, God's ticked. We've got a responsibility in all this. Do not be, do not, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's keep going, Dad. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, you are not destroyed. Okay. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And now he says this, return to me. Come back to me. No matter how many 
ways you've AWOL and off the rails, come back to me. But you ask, well, how are we to return? And he says, well, a mere mortal robbed God, yet you robbed me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. It's funny, you probably expect me to talk about giving right now. I, got nothing, I have nothing to say about that. Because the tithe was never about giving. The tithe was always about trust. So the scriptures talk so much about um, the blessings and the curses. And those are the curses. Let's get to some of the blessings. Does that sound better? You up for that? All right, let's keep going. So he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. This is a blessing that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. It's the only place in Scripture where God says to test him. The only place in Scripture he ever says to test me is with money. That's very interesting. Think about that and talk about that at Chili's today. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. I don't get a cut from Chili's, but I should. I give them a credit every Sunday just, just about. Test me in this. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough to store it. And I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And those who feared the Lord. Now look at this. There was still a remnant. There were still people who knew God. Then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other. Starbucks, coffee shop, I don't know. And the Lord listened and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord. Now can you see this? A holy history scroll was written. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord. And I'm telling you, every time you do what is right, it is written down in holy history. And you are writing your history today. And everything you do for the King of Kings is written in a scroll of remembrance. Every prayer, every offering, every gift, every consideration, every act of service, it's all written down in a scroll of remembrance. They feared the Lord. And they honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. This is talking about even the future in heaven. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who, he ser- who serves him. Wow. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Malachi chapter 4, 2 says this, But for you who revere my name, This applies to you today. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise on healing its wings, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. All right. So blessing and curses are a lot of the Old Testament. Malachi ends with foreshadowing the forerunner of Christ. And Malachi ends talking really about who John the Baptist would be. And Malachi ends talking about Elijah. And Elijah would come before the Messiah, would be the forerunner. And the Bible describes Elijah's clothing and describes Elijah's uh, food. Why do you think the Bible describes John the Baptist's clothing? Why do you think the Bible describes John the Baptist's food? It doesn't tell us what anybody else ate. It doesn't tell us what anybody else wore. 
But the whole reason the Bible tells us that John the Baptist dressed crazy and ate crazy was because he was the symbolic figure of Elijah, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. Now we're turning the corner, and now we're going forward. Look at what Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Exactly what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah before John the Baptist was born. Your son is going to do some crazy, amazing things for the kingdom of God. He will turn their hearts back to their, to their children. Now, let's go now to John chapter 1. Let's go now to the, to the New Testament. We're going forward now. And here's John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He was not the light, but he came only as a witness to the light. The true light, which is Jesus, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's telling everybody, get ready, it's on. We've had 400 years of silence, but the game is back on. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which were his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the blessing, to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human desire, not a husband's will, but born of God. And so the Word became flesh. God became incarnate. God enters into the womb of a virgin peasant girl named Mary. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Now those are the two words we're coming to. We're going to come back to those. Those two words replace blessing and curse. Those two words now get superseded and become the pinnacle of the rest of the entire scriptures, grace and truth. Let's look at the next verse. John testified concerning him. He cried out when he said, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, verse 16 is a verse I bet most of you just read over powerful verse. I want you to get this today. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in the place of grace. Grace was already given. Now, what does this mean? Moses came and gave you grace. Moses came and gave you the law. Moses came and gave you the Ten Commandments. Moses came and gave you some boundaries. He gave you some margins. And if you lived within those margins, things would go pretty well for you. Moses came to give you grace. But Jesus Christ came to give you grace upon grace. Greater grace than you could ever dream. Greater grace than you could ever get your mind around. The Old Testament grace, you had to work for it. The New Testament grace, you can't earn it. It's a gift given to you. Out of Christ's fullness, we've all received grace in the place of Moses' grace that was already given. Now, how do I know that? The next verse ties into that so sweetly because Moses gave us the law. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to circle those two words in your mind. Because how you manage the tension between grace and truth will determine how good of a mom you are. How you manage the the tension between grace and truth determines how good of a dad you're going to be. Grace and truth, how you manage those is how good of a spouse, a wife, or a husband you're really going to be. Grace and truth, how you manage those tensions is how good of a doctor, a nurse, a plumber, a salesman, a business owner, that's how good you're going to be. Your success in life is intricately tied to grace and to truth. Now, let me explain that. Do you want to hear it? Okay. All right. You're either really with me or you're falling asleep or I don't know where you're at right now. All right. I bet most of you in this room, if you went to church your whole life, I bet bet a lot of you would say you went to churches that emphasize truth. And maybe the pendulum swung a little bit heavy to the truth side. Maybe there's a big black Bible by the priest or by the preacher. Maybe that truth side was a little bit heavy. And every Sunday you got truth, 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 truth. You didn't dare sit in the first three rows of those kind of churches. I spit on people, but those preachers slung sweat on people, all right? I mean, those preachers are sweating and there's sweat everywhere. Nobody sat in the first three pews or rows of those churches. You've gone to those churches, and you've walked out of those churches like feeling like you were a half inch shorter, right? You didn't feel good. In fact, the emphasis was really on shame. And you walked out of those, a lot of those churches feeling shame. Now, truth is truth, and the truth will set you free, and you need the truth. But if all you get is the truth, and the truth beats you up all the time, you don't really have the motivation to to, to be able to walk into it. Now, others of you in the room, you may have grown up in a church, very few of you, but some of you may have grown up in a church that overemphasized grace. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how you act. Doesn't matter how you think doesn't matter what you say. Oh, honey, it's fine. It's good. It's okay. I kind of had grandmothers like this. I had one grandmother that was truth, truth, truth. My other grandmother, I promise you, I could shoot somebody in cold-blooded murder, and she would say, I didn't do it. I mean, that's the kind of grandmothers I had. And, And so in life, how do you balance these? Because as a wife, you got to have grace and truth. There's got to be truth in a marriage, but there's got to be grace in a marriage. As a parent, there's got to be grace and truth. You can't not have truth in a, in a, in a, in a family. You've got to have truth. But when do you exercise grace and when do you exercise truth? Your ability to be successful in a business, when do you really let somebody have it with truth, truth, truth? And when do you say to somebody, I know you made a mistake. Let's not make that mistake again. Let's go forward. How do we go forward? I love you. Let's go forward together. I don't know if you can say that in the workplace or not. We say that in church all the time. We tell our staff we love them all the time. We do. That doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but we still love them, right? And and so there's there's this thing called grace and truth that's not just this one verse. It's in every book of the New Testament. It permeates the entire essence of Christianity. 
Grace and truth in the Gospels, I could preach on grace and truth for two years. There's so much grace and truth on every page. It's in every book. It's in every character of the New Testament. These words, grace and truth, now replace blessings and cursings from the Old Testament because God wants you to have truth. You've got to have truth. If you don't have any truth, you'll never grow. If you don't have any truth, you'll never get any better. If you don't have any truth, you won't know what to do. And Jesus said that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you, set you free. You've got to know the truth. But you've got to have grace. And there's got to be this twin towers of these together. So let me ask you this question this morning. Which of these two do you need right now? Do you need grace or do you need truth? Well, if you're living outside of the Scriptures, if you're rejecting the Word of God and the will of God, then you need truth. You need to know the truth. Because only the truth can help you. If, if you've lived outside the will of God, but you're convicted of that, and you're convinced that God's Word is real, well then, you're ready for His grace. And I want to show you just quickly five examples outside the Gospels. Gospels are just complete with it. But I want to show you five examples where grace and truth are in every book of the Bible. I'm just going to show you five quickly. Here's the book of Revelation. Here's truth. Book of Revelation starts with truth. So I have some truth. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's truth. Ouch. But Revelation also has grace. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's grace. Oh, my, that's grace. Look at the truth from another book of the Bible. Look at this book. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. You see, grace-filled churches, they ignore this. Selfish ambition, dissensions, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Truth emphasis churches will ignore the grace part. Here's the next one about grace. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've been clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave, free, male, female. We're all one. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's grace. Let me show you a couple more examples of truth out of Romans. Here's the next one. Romans says, but because of your stubbornness and the unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's, you're storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's some more truth out of Romans. God will repay each person according to what they've done. One more truth out of Romans I want to show you. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And listen to the grace from Romans. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, Through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast... We boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
Wow, one more truth. I mean, one more grace out of Romans. You see, at just the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for us. Is that not awesome? I want to show you two more books real quickly. Let's go to Corinthians. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. That's just truth. You can ignore that. You can reject that. But the truth is, all other sins a person commits are outside. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's an ouch. Nobody really wants to hear that. But here's some grace. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you receive from God, and you are not your own? You have the Holy Spirit of God inside your body. Ephesians says this, do not get drunk on wine. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. Bad things happen. Okay? Here's what he says. Here's the grace. He says this, instead, be filled. Be filled with his spirit. What do you need this morning? What do you need? Do you need grace this morning? incredible grace no matter what you've said or what you've done no matter how far no matter how much of a Benedict Arnold no matter do you need his grace today oh my it is too good to be true do you need his grace do you need his truth his truth is meant to help you his truth is meant to lead you His truth is meant to assist and guide you in your life. What what do you need today? Well, the opposite of Benedict Arnold was Nathan Hale. If you remember, Nathan Hale was the young man who got caught for espionage for the 13 colonies. Nathan Hale was carrying a diploma from Yale. He was pretending to be a school teacher behind enemy lines, gathering information on the British, taking down information, taking copious notes. And Nathan Hale got caught on his first spy assignment. Wasn't a very good spy, okay? But man, did he have a a statement that's forever changed our lives. And Nathan Hale said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And they march him out to an apple orchard and they throw a rope over an apple tree and it was punishable by death by hanging. And he's become legendary. Now, Benedict Arnold became legendary for all the wrong reasons. Nathan Hale has become a legend in American history for giving his life. But I love what Jesus said because Jesus did not regret giving his life. Jesus never said, never would have said, I regret I've only got one life to give. Jesus was marched out to Calvary, and on Calvary, Jesus Christ knew what he came to do. He came to seek and save those that were lost. Jesus came. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And the whole reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth was to shed his blood so that we could live in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. That is awesome. And so we get to live with the grace and the truth, and the truth and the grace, 
and we marry these two and we hold on to these two. Personally, I live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's awesome. But man, I am clinging. I am clinging to the truth. I'm holding on with all my might to the truth of the Word of God. But I'm living within the umbrella of the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's your greatest need this morning? Is it truth? Well, then repent. Confess your sins. In just a minute, come forward. Our prayer partners are going to be down here. Just come forward and give your life to Christ. Is it to repent where you are? You're, you are a Christian. But you know you're not on the straight and narrow. You're kind of floundering out there. You're waffling. Maybe it's time to be baptized. We've got another beach baptism coming up August the 14th. Go out to the guest service to sign up. What do you need this morning? Probably you need some grace. Probably. Probably you need the embrace and the hug of your tender father because he loves you so, so much. So I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front. I'm going to ask all of us to stand. And I'm going to ask you today, if you've never given your life to Jesus or you need special prayer or you want special prayer, to do so. But right now, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer for you, for what's best for you, for what do you need. Let's pray together. Father, I'm sure there are some in this room that are managing this tension really, really well today. I'm sure there are many in this room that are living peacefully in grace and in truth. But I'm also sure that there's probably some in this room that are not living peacefully. And your truth will set them free. Let them respond to your scriptures, your holy scriptures. I'm also sure there's some in this room that know the truth and are turning back to you and they just want to be received from you with your grace and your mercy. You are awesome, Jesus, and we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.